Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Song, Isaiah. So if you need to find it, it's somewhere around there. Uh, so Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to look at verses 16 through 22 this evening. So, so uh, the last section of Ecclesiastes 3. A time for judgment. Verse 16 through 22, I'll begin reading at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the conditions of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirits of the animal, which go, spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. For that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we are thankful that you are the God of justice. We're also thankful that you are the God of time, the God who created time, the God who is outside of time, the God who is eternal in the heavenly places. We're thankful, O oh God, according to your decrees, as you work in this world outside of yourself, you're moving all things toward that specific time, toward that specific goal, toward that specific day of judgment, when Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead, but also that great day of happiness, that great day of rejoicing, for bodies shall be raised and your people shall be with you forever, world without end. So thank you that you're moving to that time, O God. But as we await it, O God, may we trust in your purposes and your plans even as we see much sadness and sorrow in this world. Thank you that it doesn't change the fact that there is sadness and sorrow, but we're thankful you give us perspective. You prepare us for injustice and for sin. We also know, oh God, that one day that that winter night shall pass and there shall be a great day of rejoicing in that, uh, in that warm morning when Christ shall come again. So be with us now, we pray, as we come to your word. Give us illumination by your spirit to better understand these things. And thank you that you give us wisdom from on high. We lack wisdom. We need it. So please give it to us. And we pray that sinners would be saved. We pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when one observes the world, it's no surprise that we see that things are not right. Things are not always as they should be. We see and even we ourselves expect things to be right, but we know that sometimes and most of the time it is not always so. And sometimes the way you expect justice to happen, it does not always occur in those places. And thankfully, God prepares us for this reality. God prepares us for those perplexing times and moments when we see injustice in this world, when we see sin prevail, when we see unrighteousness continue. God reminds us and tells us in his word that these things are going to come to pass. But God has a specific purpose in place for us 
when things are not always as they seem, where things are not always as we wish them to be, when things are not always right. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes has been so comforting in a depressing sort of way as we go through the book, because it explains to us our misery. It explains to us the sinfulness in this world. It explains to us, and even the preacher, Solomon himself, wrestles with the tensions of this world. Things are not always black and white. Things are not always right. And so thankfully, we have one who you think would get it all right, the wisest man in the world, wrestling with these very things. And remember, that's the purpose of the entire book. What is the meaning of life? But what are the enigmas of life? What are the inconsistencies of life? And how do we wrestle with those inconsistencies in a fallen world? And remember, the main motto and question of the book is always vanity. That's the motto. Everything is enigma. Everything is perplexing. But also, what then? If that is the case, what then? What profit has man in his labor under the sun? Well, he sought wisdom. That didn't go so well. Then there was that who sought pleasure. That wasn't great either. But then there's this reality of death. But wisdom's okay if we understand it in its proper place. Wisdom is still better than foolishness. And even though pleasure does not save and pleasure does not eternally satisfy, God still gives us good things in this world. It doesn't take away the tension, but it has the, the, those things side by side. Pleasure cannot save. Pleasure cannot satisfy. But God gives us good things in this world. Then he turned to the idea of time in Ecclesiastes 3, the problem and tyranny of it. The reality is there is a time for every purpose under heaven. God does whatever he pleases, and he makes everything beautiful in its time. But we cannot find out the end from the beginning. We cannot know the works of God from the beginning to the end. So then he turns to this idea of justice. What then about justice? And perhaps more so, what then about injustice in this world? If there's a time for everything under heaven, why does unrighteousness prevail in this world? And so that is the clear problem in these verses. Prevailing injustice, prevailing sin, prevailing unrighteousness in this world. And perhaps we could say with respect to injustice, uh, the, the, the setting is the courts. The setting is, the, ju is the, the judicial system. Why is it that there is unrighteousness in the place of the courts? Why are the innocent being punished and the oppressed being oppressed without comfort? And because God gives good institutions that are meant to be for administering justice, but why is there still injustice in them? And why does it still prevail? So the preacher, who I believe is Solomon, wrestles with the reality of injustice and unfairness in the world in verses 16 through 22. You want things to be fair. Sadly, you are going to have a rude awakening. I like things to be fair, and I've had a rude awakening in life and in this book as well. Sometimes there is much injustice and unfairness in this world because of sin. Injustice, unfortunately, prevails. And so we'll look at this idea of injustice prevailing, injustice continuing, injustice going on, which seems like a long time without any retribution. We'll look at it under two headings. First of all, when, when injustice prevails, verses 16 through 17. And then secondly, why injustice prevails, verses 18 through 22. So when injustice prevails, and then verse 18 through 22, why injustice prevails. So let's first look at when. 
injustice, unrighteousness, sinfulness prevails in this world. And notice, he continues his quest through observation. He says in verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun. What's interesting is that word moreover typically is the word still, I saw under the sun. He's connecting us, connecting uh, us with what we already saw in verses 1 through 15. That mystery of time, a time for every purpose under heaven. He's going to draw upon that once we get to verse 17. But he's already seen there is a time for everything. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to uh, plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. So on and so forth. And it's all in the providence of God. And he finished at that place in verse 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. Ecclesiastes, I think, is underutilized when it comes to doctrine. There's a lot of wonderful discussion here about God's providence, a lot of discussion here about judgment, a lot of discussion and comfort that we have in the book. But he highlights God's providential workings in this world. God does all things. We cannot know the work of God from the beginning to the end. And he then relates that with this idea of injustice. And again, it's what he observes. It's what he sees. It's what the wise man is recognizing in this world. See, it's not wrong to use our senses. It's not wrong to see what's going on in this world and stop and reflect on what is going on. And so that's what he is doing. Now he has theology to help him. He has the law of God to help him. It's not just blind sort of uh, sensory understanding, but he's recognizing and seeing how the world works. He's observing what is happening. And so what he sees under the sun, he observes the order and the disorder in this fallen world. There is chaos in this world. There is sadness in this world. Yet there is an order in this world, but there still is a taintedness to that order. And so the tension is when things don't work. And the thing that doesn't seem to be working is the place of judgment. The gates, if you will, in the Old Testament uh, Old Testament Israel. The gates was kind of like that city hall for the cities. It's the place where the council would sit, the judges sit, and they'd come and hear various judicial cases. That you would think would be the place of justice and judgment, right? You think that judges would know the law well and judge accordingly, right? You think they wouldn't take bribes, they wouldn't engage in partiality, they wouldn't render unjust verdicts, right? But Solomon recognizes in the place that you'd expect justice, what does he see? In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. The gates were filled with all the things that the judge was not supposed to be. We just looked at this in Deuteronomy 17. What the judge must be. And all those things I mentioned, he must not show impartiality. He must not give a favorable verdict to his friend and render an unfavorable verdict to someone else based on status. It has to be based on uh, the, the proper punishment. Whatever that person did, they need to receive the proper punishment for their crime. It's not meant to be if one has more money, it can bribe his way out of it. That ought not to be the case. And the history of Israel proved that they engaged in wickedness at the gates. They punished the, punished the, the, uh, the, the, the innocent and let the guilty go free. It's the reversal of what we call the lex talionis, the law of retribution. We looked at that on Wednesday night. 
And we saw there, eye for an eye, life for life, tooth for tooth. It's a legal principle, just meaning the punishment fits the crime. Not meant to be used for vengeance, which is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. But the whole idea is that in a legal system, in the judicial sphere, the punishment must fit the crime. And in this case, it's the reversal of that. In this case, people are getting off scot-free when they should get a just punishment. And those who perhaps uh, received did something wrong, but it wasn't what they uh, wasn't the, the the severity of the punishment they got. They are getting a harsher punishment than what they truly do deserve. Now, brethren, if I'm reading all this off and you know mentioning all these things, hopefully you're thinking about the world we live in today a little bit. I mean, how is it that in the past two years, pastors went to prison, but murderers kind of go off just fine, right? Like, what world are we living in that way? How is it that Justin Trudeau, oh, I shouldn't, I'm sorry, I shouldn't mention him. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm like, what am I saying? What's going on? It's not meant to be political in the pulpit. But the idea is, he who shall not be named. Sorry. But the government, and it can be a conservative or whatever, there's no perfect magistrate in this world. But the point is, sometimes, and we've seen it in our history recently, where they punish the innocent and protect the guilty. It's a reversal of the lex talionis. Terrorists are paid and pastors are put in prison. What world are we living in? Injustice in the place of judgment. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And boy, oh boy, this is clear in the murder of babies, isn't it? The murder of babies in the womb, the innocent. The innocent being butchered in the womb, and people go off scot-free. Now, brethren, I usually like to say that mothers who commit abortion, there is forgiveness and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's still a wicked and terrible sin. There is injustice in this world, isn't there? Injustice seems to prevail in this world. It seems to prevail in our country. It seems to prevail in every single country around the world. There is no perfect country, is there? It's everywhere. I saw under the sun that implies that it's a universal problem, not just for Canada, not just for the U.S., not just for North America, but every part of the world. There is nothing new under the sun. A reversal of the lex talionis. I saw these things. I recognized what was happening. He's a real guy. I like Solomon for that reason. He's a real dude who recognizes real problems in this world. And God, through Solomon, speaks to us about the real problems and inconsistencies we face. So then what are we to do? And he gives two reflections. We'll spend the latter part of this first point on the first reflection. And we'll go into the, in the next point under that second reflection there. But notice we see the lesson it teaches us about God in verse 17. It's his theological response after some reflection. Do you ever stop and reflect? Stop and ponder. I'm not trying to get all evangelical on us, by the way, but it's not wrong to stop and meditate, right? We read the Bible, we stop and think about it. That's legit. We read something in our you know, theology book, we stop and ponder and consider what that means. We see what's going on in the world, we stop and reflect. I find life so busy and the phone just flicks through like this. Do we ever stop and reflect on what we're reading on the phone? 
we read one thing and then we just read actually just the line of it, the, the headline, and we don't actually read the article. And we flip through the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. Do we stop and reflect on what is actually going on? Or do we just make a response right away? Rhetorical question. How many of you just make a response right away without stopping and thinking about it? That's a product of our culture. And we have to just confess that unfortunately we're a product of our culture in that way. And brother, may I say, it's not wrong to stop and reflect. Stop and ponder, stop and think, stop and meditate. And so he says, after he sees what's going on, he stops and reflects. I said in my heart. And this is where theology helps him. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. There might be injustice at the gates. There might be iniquity at the gates and wickedness in the place of righteousness. What gives them comfort? There shall come a time when God judges the righteous and the wicked. There's a time that shall come when God judges all things that have come to pass, where every single person will have to give an account before the Lord God Almighty. The question is whether you're in Christ or outside of Christ. Because if you're in Christ, what do you say? Christ died for me. And God says on that day, not guilty. We're already not guilty by the work of Christ, by the imputation of his righteousness. But we'll hear it declared on that day. A manifestation of his mercy on that day, not guilty. But if you're not in Christ, you will have a just judgment rendered upon you for sinning against God most high. Even the littlest sin is worth everlasting punishment. You want to know why? Because you sinned against an everlasting God. And God who is an everlasting perfect God must punish sin perfectly. He does that in two ways. In Jesus or in you. Believe on Jesus. Find forgiveness and find mercy. And when you stand on that day, you shall be declared not guilty. God will come and judge the righteous and the wicked. God really is the answer to all our questions, isn't it? But notice it doesn't take away that tension. Or sorry, it, oh yeah, it doesn't take away that tension. There's still injustice and wickedness and iniquity in this world, isn't there? It gives us comfort and strength as we walk through this world. It doesn't take away that tension. It doesn't take away that wrestling. It doesn't take away that injustice that you feel when you hear about babies murdered in the womb. It doesn't take that away. But there will come a time, as he says, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Drawing our attention back to all that he said in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 9. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. And there is going to be a time of judgment when God comes again to judge the living and the dead. And the oppressed will be vindicated. And everything shall be made right. He's reiterating 3.1 in a very helpful application in 3.17. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Well, I love the word of God because, again, God understands we are sinful people. And I do like Ecclesiastes because it highlights that tension. And thankfully, God prepares us for the injustice we face, namely from governments, when governments and 
judges and people in high places render verdicts that are not right. When there are show trials done against Christians and pastors and other people, just in general, when injustice is seen, God prepares us for that. We shouldn't be surprised when it comes, right? On the one hand, it is surprising when God's people, on one hand, it is surprising that it happens, but on the other, it's not. The reason it's not, sorry, it is surprising is because we want all things to be right, don't we? We have that. We have that sensus divinitatis, that sense of the divine. We are created in the image of God, and we have the law of God written on our hearts. And there is some sense that's tainted. The image of God is tainted by the fall. But we still have this desire of wanting things to be right, don't we? Somewhere. That's why it's just where is what is right and what is wrong. It's not what I think. It's what God thinks. But there still is that there. So we want things to work out and things to do what they are supposed to do, don't we? That's why I hate technology, because I want to press that button and I want that button to do what the button says it's going to do. When that button doesn't do what that button says it's going to do, I feel rage and injustice and tension. I know that's very trivial, but the book helps me not just with those things, but when we see pastors in prison, right? We see pastors in Canada put in prison for standing up and keeping their doors open. They just kept their doors open for church, for the people of, like, like that's it. For the sake of their flock who need the word of God, who need to be fed spiritually. Injustice in this land and other parts of the world that we read about a lot in Voice of the Martyrs, it happens. We want things to be right. But also, I find surprising when God's people are surprised by unrighteousness in this world. Especially Reformed folk. I mean, we believe in the doctrine of sin. We believe in the doctrine of depravity and the doctrine of providence. But if you're like me, I still get perplexed by it. Like, why is this happening? Why is that? It should surprise us. Injustice in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. That's the tension, isn't it? Things don't always work out as they are supposed to. And there is much sadness and sorrow and wickedness in this world that we sometimes inflict too because of our remaining corruption in this world. But there is so much pain and suffering. One writer says, and he gives a laundry list of tragedies that have happened. So plug your ears if you want. When pain and suffering are conjoined with the monstrous mystery of evil, we come to a crossroads from which there is no turning back. The tsunami of high school killings in Kentucky, Oregon, and Colorado, the rampage of killer Rafael Resendez Ramirez, the torture spree of 38-year-old Charles Ng, which led to the murder of six men, three women, and two baby boys, the horror of the 78-year-old mother who belatedly confessed to suffocating all of her eight children before they had reached the age of two, the mass graves of slaughtered ethnic Albanians in Kosovo, the list of evil incidences goes on and on, doesn't it? And there are many unjust things that we never hear of, many sad things that we never know of, but the blood of innocent the innocent cry out. It does. They do. God hates hands that shed innocent blood, doesn't he? Proverbs 6, verse 17. 
It is a terrible and sad thing to read about. It doesn't change the sadness and the sorrow and the sin in this world. It doesn't change God. Uh, doesn't, those things are still going to be there. But we must confess that God in his infinite wisdom through the word, especially through the wisdom literature, prepares us and tells us there is tension. Does an atheist have that? Does an atheist have the explanation of why the world is the way it is? Do Christians in churches where they only talk about the goodness of humanity, do they have the explanations of the sad things that go on in this world? Does Joel Osteen have Ecclesiastes 3? Can he can you comfort the flock? It's just not enough faith. That's not how he sounds. I'm sure there's more of a Texan accent there. But does, uh, does he have comfort for his people? Only the word of God in Christ gives us that comfort, doesn't it? Things are not always as they seem. Things are not always right. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And we have to confess that. We don't always understand it, but we must confess it. God is wise and God is good. And God says there's a time for every purpose and every work under heaven. So that's when just injustice prevails. Let's then look secondly at why injustice prevails, verses 18 through 22. And this is where we see the lesson about us. Verse 18, so again, I said in my heart, so he observes, and this is what he's reflecting on. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, so all of humanity, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. God delays his judgment, but why does he delay his judgment? Well, it's not a very flattering reason, is it? We have to realize we're like beasts. We're like animals. By the way, I just want to give a shout out to all the mothers today. Happy Mother's Day. Most of the time, you probably are not going to hear a sermon like this on Mother's Day in any other church. So you should be thankful about that very thing. You get to hear about why you're like an animal and why you're going to die. And about, you know, <laughs> about Jesus, all the suffering he goes through. That is far greater than me telling you why you're great. Your kids can tell you why you're great. I need to tell you why God is good, right? But Again, you're never going to get hear anything like this on any other church, but he's going to tell us we're beasts. They may see them that they may see themselves that they are like animals. And he goes on to explain why that is. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. It teaches us that we ourselves are but a worm. Kinder said, uh, Kidner says, why does God delay? He says, our first instance is not to teach God his business. How often do we grumble and complain at the circumstance God has put us in? How often do you hear unbelievers say, well, I would never sacrifice my son like that. I would never do what Abraham did or ask God or ask Abraham to do what he ought to sacrifice. I would never do that. Humans think they know better than God. You and I, in our murmuring and complaining, think we know better than God. So what then is God's delay? What then is the purpose of injustice? Even to teach us, dear brethren, we are nothing. For our first instance is not to teach God his business, but to learn the truth about 
ourselves a lesson we are very slow to accept. We all think we're great. We all think we're wonderful. We all think we're going to soar as high as the eagle. Brethren, we are but dust. We need to remember that. This life is fleeting. We are the created. He is the creator. This is what he wants to teach us, to teach you, and to teach, well, the sons of men. So often the sons of men want to be God, don't they? That's idolatry, isn't it? The sons of men wish to be God and tell God what to do rather than trust in him and believe upon him. What happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. We die like animals. We die like them. Man just dies just like every animal does. He brings up that great leveler again. He already said that in 2.16 when he talked about what shall happen to the fool and the righteous. The same thing. We're all going to die. Again, the world's forgotten this. And the past two years have shone a light on this very thing. We're all going to die. There's an appointed time for us all to die. The question is, where will we go in that afterlife? Where will we be? Who will we be with? And the reality is the wicked and the righteous will die as well. All have breath and all have life and all shall pass. Even the animals all go. Surely they shall have, verse 19, have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all is vanity. This is why it's an enigma, isn't it? We're all going to die. We're all going to pass. He's going to bring this up again in 12 and bring this up again. Uh, 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 we already brought it up in chapter two. He's going to bring up again in other places. Death. It's not wrong to stop and ponder and consider death, right? Because it teaches us to number our days, doesn't it? God teaches us to number our days with wisdom and grace. And God is the one who is the giver of life and the one who takes life as well. Psalm 49 speaks about this, how we are but like animals in Psalm 49, 12, which is why I read that at the outset. But all is vanity, all is enigma. It is striving after wind. What advantage has man over the animal? Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from dust and all return to dust. This most definitely has Genesis 3.19 in the background. The result of the fall is death, isn't it? From dust to dust. Drawing our attention to when sin and its results came into the world. And why the world is the way it is. And why there's injustice because of sinfulness in this world. Man is desperately wicked. The heart is desperately wicked, isn't it? There's no one righteous. No, not one. Then the enigmas continue, though. We're like animals and there's no advantage for us. Verse 21. What about souls? What about the spirits? What is that? What is what happens after we die? Verse 21. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. Man cannot understand by reason and observation alone is where does the soul go? What happens after death? We need special revelation for that very thing. And so he's asking a question. Who knows? Who knows where it shall be? Who knows where the spirit of man goes? Who knows where the spirit of animals go? Although there is 
some reference there. The spirits go to be with man and the, uh, the man goes to be with God and the spirits of the animal descend, which goes upward and the spirit of the animal, which go, uh, goes down to the earth. What shall happen to those very things? And the language of spirit here is highlighting the fact that God gives life. He breathes life and God takes life. There's language in Acts 17, 28, as uh, Paul is speaking to the Athenians, uh, the people in Athens. And he says to them, in God or God in him, we live and move and have our being. That is every person, whether believer or unbeliever, breathes because God said it was so. And God also can take away that very breath, can't he? We live and move and have our being. Hopefully you see the point of what he's doing here. We are nothing. He is everything. And we are utterly dependent upon him, well, for everything in this world. And so he asked this question. And the question is meant to elicit another question. What then makes us better than the animals? That's a good question. If we all die, well, what makes us better than them? Now, theologically, even though it's a question, there still recognizes a difference. We know that God at creation made man in his image. He didn't make animals in his image. But the point is man dies and rots with the beast. Man and die, man also goes the way that the beasts go. Now the souls of men go to be with God. The souls of believers go to be with God. The souls of the wicked appear in the presence of the judge of all in a very scary way, Jude 6 and 7. But the souls of God's people go to be with God. I know we're reading the New Testament into that, but God is the God of the entire Bible, and we must do so. Gill says there is indeed a difference between a man and a beast. Though they have one breath, they have not one spirit or soul. Man has a rational and immortal soul, which when he dies, goes upward to, to God that gave it, to be judged by him and disposed of by him in its proper apartment until the day of the resurrection of the body. So man's soul goes to be with God, the beast goes down into the earth. But man still dies like the beast. And that's the ironic thing, isn't it? Man who wanted to be God dies with the cattle. Eve wanted to be God and that's what Satan said in the garden when he says, you'll be like God. It should be, you let, you'll be like gods. You'll be like little gods, little deities. Man wanted this very thing. The man dies like the beast. To dust, they all go. Who knows? The spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So what then? How are, you, how are we supposed to live if we're just animals? Well, verse 22. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. He once again, which he's already done in verse 24 of chapter 2 and verse 12 of chapter 3, and will do again in Ecclesiastes 5 and Ecclesiastes 9. What then has man, the prophet of man, in his labor under the sun? To enjoy the gifts that God gives. Not to sin with those gifts, but to enjoy those gifts that our creator has provided. God has given us temporal blessings in this world. Yes, again, there is vanity. 
we shall pass and leave all those temporal things to whoever, who knows whether they'll be wise or not, as he says, in two. That doesn't change the fact that we can enjoy them now, right? God gives us our daily bread, and we should thank him for that daily bread, be contented in that daily bread, and enjoy the works of our labor that God has given. That is a perfectly good and blessed thing to thank him for all the gifts that he gives. We shall die. We shall pass. What then? There is nothing better for a man than that he should that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. And that certainly alludes back to chapter two, when he's worried about his heritage, who he will, the, the following man would be, who his son would be. So again, there's that tension. We don't know what the children will do with all those good things, but the man can still enjoy them now with those said children, perhaps before he passes away. So if we're all gonna die, I perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. And another reason as well is we don't know what tomorrow brings, right? I'm not saying we go hog wild and blow all our money. I'm not saying that. But God gives us good things to enjoy, doesn't he? He provides for us day by day. Don't worry about tomorrow, for today has its problems. Doesn't our Lord say this? That's kind of what Solomon is saying in the end of verse 22. Or who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Brother, we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I know I pray that we don't put our minds and think about what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm going to break that prayer just for a second here. We think perhaps we're going to get up and go do this. I'm going to take my day off, hopefully. I'm going to, you know, maybe spend some time with family, go for a walk. That's my plan. I could get hit by a truck on the way out. I could drop dead right now for whatever reason. Who knows? Brother, we don't know what tomorrow holds or what tomorrow brings. Don't worry about today, for tomorrow has its troubles. This is the conclusion of the matter. This is the crux of the whole matter. We don't know our future. But there is a time when we shall die. We just don't know when that is, right? It shall happen. We don't know when it will happen because we're not God. And brother, I'm okay with that. Well, in my remaining corruption, maybe I'm not okay with that, but as I read the scriptures, I'm perfectly okay with that. As I see the world and everything going wrong with it, I'm perfectly okay with it. As I see injustice happening in the world, I'm perfectly okay with it. God can handle everything, can't he? We must trust in him and put our faith in him and understand that he orders all things according to the counsel of his will we so often want to be god and don't want to die and want to know the future well that is only what god knows and this is what god teaches us when he delays his justice in its fullness when he delay teaches us about the reality of certain death we are not gods but he is who can bring them to see what will happen after him and it really is an encouraging thing. God is, the, is the, 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 the potentate of time that we see in 3, 1 through 15. One hymn writer says, Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, Even let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but he will bear us through. 
who gives the lilies clothing will clothe his people too. Brethren, doesn't this give us perspective in an unjust world that God is working all things for the good of his people and all things well? Do we believe as Calvinists actually in the providence of God or do we just say it? Do we believe that God is actually putting us in various situations and purposes and reasons or various times and places for certain reasons that we don't understand? We're not going to understand everything, but brethren, we must submit, as Jeremiah Burroughs says in his great book on the rare jewel of Christian contentment, submit to God's will and delight in it. God might be withholding something from you for a good reason. God has placed you in certain circumstances for a reason, and we ought to be content with him and trust in his ways because he is providentially working all things. He is providential over injustice. He is providential over death and providential in judgment as well. So God's providence gives us perspective, but also death gives us perspective, doesn't it? (laughs) There's appointed once for us all to die. Hebrews 9. And later on, the preacher will say, the living do well to remember it. The living forgot this when everybody lost their minds two years ago and continue to lose their minds even till now. Death is part of life. We must accept that very thing. We must realize that. I don't know when I'm going to die, when you're going to die, when whoever's going to die, but we trust in God, don't we? Death gives us perspective in this world, pointed for us all once to die. The life of comfort and ease, I think, clouds the reality that we will die. Sometimes affliction teaches us that we are but dust, and that's a good thing, and we ought to praise God for those afflictions. Not that we enjoy the afflictions, but we praise God for those afflictions. So he gives us perspective with his providence. He gives us perspective in death. And he also gives us perspective with the reality of judgment. That gives us hope in this life, doesn't it? Christ shall come and judge the living and the dead. Christ shall make his enemies his footstool when God's people are unjustly put in prison and unjustly killed. I know we don't like that language, but 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, as he speaks to them, the Thessalonians, about the persecutions and tribulations they endured, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So God was right to persecute them, that they may be counted worthy of the kingdom. But also it is his righteousness and righteous thing, verse 6, a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power when he comes in that day. Brother, I pray that persecutors are saved, but I also pray that they are judged righteously as well. We pray that they're changed. We pray that God would bring righteous judgment upon them. And brethren, God will make all things right. Will he not? All things will be made right on that day. 
whether he manifests his mercy to those who are in Christ or manifests his justice to those that have sinned against him, persist in their sins against him, rebel in their sins against him, and oppress the people of God. They shall be rightly judged, and everything that is unjust shall be made right. I long for his coming. I long for his kingdom. And if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe upon him. You shall die. Where will you be when you pass? Will you believe in him now? Or will you die in your trespasses and sins? For as God says, there is a time for every purpose under heaven. And even the time shall come when God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you that you are the God of time and the God who is outside of time, that you are that potentate of time, the one who governs all things and guides all things according to your purposes, the one who gives us an anchor in shifting sands and shifting times. Thank you, O God, that you give us perspective in unjust times as well, when there is much sin and much sorrow and sadness in this world. Thank you, O God, that you tell us and teach us these things, that there is a time for every purpose under heaven, even a time of your coming judgment. So we pray, O God, that when we see injustice in this world, that we would speak truth, but also endure uh, affliction when it comes for sharing said truth. We know, O God, we need your strength in those times to stand in those moments when we see so many sad things. Thank you that you are God and we are man. And thank you that you know what is right and good. You placed us in times and circumstances for your purposes and goals that are right for us. Even if they are hard for us, may we recognize that you are God. And thank you that you're the one who really is moving all things for your purposes and for your glory. We pray, oh God, that you would be honored and glorified in our midst that we would put our faith and trust in you, put our faith in all your promises, put our faith in your goodness, put our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall come again to judge the living and the dead. So we pray that you would save sinners this day. Uh, Please impress upon them the seriousness of death, the seriousness of eternity, and we pray, oh God, that you would save their souls. Thank you that you are merciful and kind. Be with us now as we go into the world. Help us not to worry about tomorrow, for today has its troubles. And thank you that you provide for us all our daily needs. So be with us now as we go into the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.